little bit about Tab. He's been in full-time ministry since 1998 when he planted a church in the suburbs of Chicago. And in 2012, Tab and his wife Sung and their four children were sent out from that church to start Grace Church of East County. So he holds an MA degree in biblical studies from Reformed Theological Seminary, and he serves Grace Church of East County as the primary preaching pastor there. And uh, so Tab has been a great friend of Pastor Brian for almost a decade now, and uh, he's regularly been praying for us as we've, we've gone through our struggles as a church these past years. So thank you so much for that, Tab. We're excited to have you, and we know you'll be a blessing to us this morning. So please welcome Tab Trainer. Well, good morning. Yeah, please, uh, do, I don't know how you handle this part, so I assume you can be seated. <laughs> I don't know if you stay standing for a while or not. Do you stand for God's word? Is that what you do? Or, okay, all right. Well, let me just say, uh, let me say one quick thing before we do that. Um, I just love your pastor, Brian, and it's so good to be here with you, and I just appreciate how you have given the Hendry family, this mini sabbatical to be refreshed, to serve you all the more, as I know they are eager to do. If there's, if there's one word in my mind that describes my friend Brian, it's the word earnest. He's just an earnest man who earnestly loves God, earnestly loves his word, and, and earnestly loves you. And I know you know that, but I just wanted you to hear my heart for Brian and my gratefulness for this mini sabbatical. When Brian contacted me asking if I could come because you were giving them this break, I quickly accepted because I was so glad to be here and in some small way support him. So with that, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 14 and I guess stand again. In my home church, we are preaching our way through the book of Exodus, and this is the passage I'm going to preach uh, next week, and so it's a bit of a lengthy passage, so if you don't want to remain standing, I guess that's all right too, huh? Um, this is Exodus chapter 14, second book of the Bible, your Bible app, if you're looking for it, Exodus 14, I'm going to pick it up halfway through the chapter. But follow along with me. This is God's word. Beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptian dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. May God bless his word to our hearts and minds today. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Phil Riken has written that to study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. To study this book is to learn the theology of salvation. And that's certainly what this passage supplies. So imagine the scene. You and your people, you have been enslaved for centuries in Egypt. At one point, they sought to drown all of the babies, the male children of the Israelites, and the cruel oppression has only, it only got worse when Moses showed up as God's announced deliverer. But recently, recently God brought nine devastating plagues, laying waste to the land of Egypt until one last plague when his judgment fell 
on all the firstborn of Egypt. But God passed over your firstborn. Why? Because you had the blood of a lamb dripping down the doorframe of your house. With that final plague, Pharaoh and the Egyptians said, Get out! Leave! Take our gold and silver with you. And so you, you plundered the Egyptians and you thought, well, you thought you were home free on the Promised Land Express. But now, now God had you turn back and camp next to the sea with, with no way forward. And you hear a rumbling in the distance and you see dust rising on the horizon. It is Pharaoh and his army and 600 chariots, the, the tanks of the ancient world. You don't have any weapons to defend yourselves. You certainly don't have chariots and horsemen. You are completely vulnerable. You're stuck. You're helpless. Can you relate to that in your own life right now? You're helpless, you're vulnerable, and so the text says you are fearing greatly. Of course you are. But Moses said, verse 13, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. That's what we want to do here. See the salvation of the Lord. A theology of salvation from this passage that has three parts. First part I would call salvation for glory. Here's the first part of this theology of salvation. Salvation for glory. God's glory. Look at verse 15 again, please. The Lord said to Moses, Why? Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. The rebuke is given to Moses, but it is certainly intended for the people. And God says, stop crying out to me. Stop praying to me. It's time to move forward. So to Moses, he says, verse 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And notice verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So they shall go in after them. So Moses, lift up your staff, stretch it out to show what's about to happen is no accident, no natural disaster, no freak of nature. God is doing this. And he's doing a frightening thing, isn't he? Hardening the Egyptians' hearts. Friends, it's a frightening thing for God to give us over to what we want. God hardens the Egyptians' hearts that they will pursue Israel into the sea. Notice why, as verse 17 continues, notice why God says, and I will get glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen, Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, the true God, the living God, when I have gotten glory, glory over Pharaoh 
his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, this was originally written in Hebrew, and Hebrew doesn't have exclamation marks. It shows emphasis by repetition. So, in verses 17 and 18, God says, I will get glory. Same thing in verse 4. God says, I will get glory, glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So, friends, catch this. At this crucial moment of salvation in the Old Testament, God is showing us explicitly why he's doing what he's doing. His motive? His own glory. The repeated word, glory. I will get glory. He will show the weightiness of his worth. That's what this word glory means. Weight. The, the heaviness of his surpassing greatness and majesty as the one true God. But I, I wonder... I wonder if Moses wasn't maybe a little bit confused about this motivation. I would be thinking, well, being rescued is all about our benefit. It's all about my benefit, our benefit, but God's fundamental motivation is not ultimately us-centered here. It's Him-centered. Martin Luther once said that our constant tendency is to curve in on ourselves. And I know that tendency all too well in my life. I curve in on myself. Life becomes all about tab. What is affecting tab? What is convenient for tab? Are tab's preferences being heated? I get curved in on myself. Friends, can you relate? Anybody? I'm not the only one. And what we can do is bring that curved-in nature to our theology of salvation. Sometimes for understandable reasons, for understandable reasons, it is said, if you were the only person in the world, the only person in the world, Jesus still would have died for you. And that said with the very, very best of intentions. But is the cross of Christ really an affirmation of my worth, ultimately? Isn't it more about the seriousness of my sin? And isn't it a statement about the glory of God? The glory of His absolute holiness and His utter justice and yes, his amazing love and mercy and grace. I mean, just survey, survey the book of Romans later. Like Romans 9, where it says God makes known, quote, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Or Romans 11, after 11 chapters of extolling this great salvation in Jesus, we have this doxology from him, through him, to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Or Romans 15, God sent his Son into the world that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
I'm not, I'm not saying that God doesn't love you. I'm saying he loves you and sent his son for you, ultimately for his glory. So, so first let this theology of salvation begin to turn us a little bit away from ourselves, from our curved-in nature, to see and magnify this morning God in his glory. So God saves for his glory, but, but how? How does he save for his glory here? Well, that's the second piece of this theology of salvation. Secondly, I would call it salvation through judgment. First, salvation for glory, but second, salvation through judgment. This is how God saves. Salvation through judgment. Now, look at verse 19, the cloud and pillar of fire which have been guiding the people forward now moves behind them. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? This massive cloud leading you forward now is on the move. Now it goes behind you. You're wondering, are we done for? Is God abandoning us? No. God now protecting his people from the approaching Egyptian army. In fact, the cloud is here identified in verse 19 as the angel of God. God later on looks down out of this pillar and cloud showing his personal involvement and care like he cares for you. Then verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord God himself drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. The one who rules over creation sends a strong wind because he uses means very often. So this wind blows. It blows all night. And friends, this, this would appear to be no light breeze. <laughs> This is a serious wind. This is a water-moving, sea-parting kind of wind. This is a howling wind blowing all night until a pathway through the sea now appears and there is a wall of water on your right and a wall of water on your left. Wasn't that wild? Howling winds. Wall of water here, wall of water there, and you walk through the sea on dry ground. You might have noticed that emphasis comes up a few times. Dry ground, dry ground, dry ground. It's the same word God uses in Genesis 1 when he separates the water from the land to make dry land or dry ground. So maybe... Maybe this is God rolling something back of his creative work for the salvation of his people. Then, when God allows it, at the right time, the Egyptians fall into the sea, or follow rather, into the sea, and the divine warrior begins to fight for his people. He throws the Egyptians into a panic, He's clogging the wheels of their chariots. God does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. Aren't you glad? 
That's the kind of God he is. He does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. And the Egyptians realize this. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, they say, let us flee. Let us get out of here. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians thought that Israel was trapped, and now they realize the trap is springing on them. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretched out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon those fearsome chariots, and upon their horsemen, and of the terrifying Egyptian army. Verse 28 says, Not one of them remained. Not one remained that followed into the sea. It is, it is in a real sense, an expression of justice. Earlier in the book, Egyptians sought to drown Israelite babies, and now their own army drowns instead. All because God had hardened their hearts, giving them over to what they wanted. As God, friends, God gets glory for himself through judgment. God is getting glory for himself through judgment. This is a, this is a central way God glorifies himself throughout the Bible. In the flood, in the book of Genesis, another watery judgment on the human race, yet through that judgment, salvation for Noah and his family in the ark. In the Passover, in this book, God's plague of judgment falls on the Egyptian firstborn, but that brought salvation for those trusting in the blood of the Lamb, and most profoundly in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's judgment fell on his innocent, pure, perfect Son, for the salvation of all who will believe. All this points, doesn't it? All this points to the fact that God judges all sin. Those sins not paid for by His Son will be met with justice for all eternity in a real place called hell. This judgment here points forward to that ultimate judgment to come. But there is salvation as a result for Israel. It is salvation through judgment. There, there is salvation here as well. The Israelites see those Egyptians pursuing them, now littering the seashore. Their enemies drowned. What would this mean to them? What would it mean if you were an Israelite seeing that now? That fearsome army destroyed. What would that mean for you? Wouldn't it mean your salvation is certain? Your deliverance confirmed. That's why Alec Matir likens this scene to the resurrection of Jesus. If the Passover lamb points us to the cross of Christ, he says this parting of the sea is kind of like the resurrection of Christ. It's where we 
see and get our assurance and our confirmation, our deliverance from sin and death is real. Confirmed. In fact, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul likens this scene to a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, our fathers, 1 Corinthians 10, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That means, dear Christian, that means if you are trusting Christ, you've had your own kind of exodus experience. Do you know that? If you're trusting Jesus this morning, you've had your own kind of exodus Experience. You've been baptized not into Moses, but into Jesus. You've had an exodus of an even more profound deliverance from sin and death to be joined to Jesus and walk in newness of life. So, so are you catching this theology of salvation? Judgment is real. Friends, God is holy. He's just but His judgment was poured out on His Son in our place for all who believe because He is gracious and merciful and loving. God saves for His glory through judgment like here. So how should we respond? How should you and I respond to that? You might be sitting here saying, so what? Or maybe, I hope this guy doesn't come back. <laughs> so what? How should we respond to this? God saves for his glory. Through this fearful, awesome act of judgment, how should we respond? Well, that's the third piece here. Third, we see salvation unto what I would call reverent faith. Salvation unto reverent faith, trust. Look at verse 30 with me, please. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw, they saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Notice, here's the response. So, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They see the Egyptian dead. Salvation confirmed. They behold God's great power to rescue them. And their response is twofold fearing God, holding Him in awe and reverence and wonder and believing God, fearing and faith. They go together, what I would call reverent faith. They've gone from fearing greatly in verse 10, fearing greatly to a very different kind of fear. A faith with awe and reverence and wonder. Reverent faith in response to a salvation that is all of grace.
Isn't that what we see here? Reverent faith in response to a salvation that is all of grace, friends. Israel, recall, was trapped at the sea. Helpless, vulnerable, 600 chariots rolling down on top of them, and that's how we are left to ourselves in our own sin, in our sinful condition in which we are born. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless and helpless to rescue ourselves. Just like Israel here. In 2014, the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, he was talking about his legacy as mayor, the initiatives he had spearheaded to eliminate secondhand smoke from public places and to reduce gun violence and things like that. And then he said this, quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, I am not seeking to put Mr. Bloomberg down. I just want to illustrate that he has a theology of salvation. We all do. You do. I do. We all have a theology of salvation. His theology did not include his own helplessness before God. Does yours? Does your theology of your own salvation include your desperate state left to yourself? I mean, this doesn't it just undercut for us all self righteousness, all kind of us versus them attitudes, you know, us here, those people out there. No, friends, we were helpless, just like the Israelites here, trapped next to the sea. And yet, this is the soil in which a reverent faith sprouts and grows. It begins just with help. That's a great prayer, by the way. Help! I need rescue! I can't rescue myself. Have mercy on me. I need the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you've not yet believed on Jesus, if you're here this morning and not yet a believer in Jesus, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. I would urge you to cry out like that. In utter helplessness, crying out for the Lamb of God to take away your sins. But maybe you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, but you're, you're struggling with doubts like we often can. Reverent faith seems like some kind of distant dream to you. And remember, the people here, they begin fearing greatly. I mean, God is being faithful to the faithless here. That's the kind of God he is. He's faithful, friends, when we are faithless. And even here in verse 31, even here in verse 31, this is not some strong, fully developed, mature faith. They're, they're going to have real doubts real soon. Lots of them. Read the rest of the book of Exodus. 
But what they're doing here is the right thing. Beholding God's great power and resting in that. And you can do the same this morning. In the midst of doubts or fears or struggles, resting in the great power of your God. I like how Tim Keller has put it. He said, if you're falling off a cliff, if you are falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Weak faith is able to lay hold of a strong branch. He says salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. Take that away this morning. This is not a strong faith here. This is a weak faith in this passage in a strong branch. And that's enough. That's enough for me. That's enough for you, friend. Weak faith in a strong branch. So behold the object of your faith, the God who saves by his great power for his glory. But maybe one more category. One more category to think about reverent faith this morning as a response. Maybe you're here and you're in the midst of suffering. You're walking through a trial, some difficulty, like we often are. God, God is really, God is training a people in Exodus to trust him. They are in a crash course on trusting God. And maybe, maybe God has you in the same place right now. If so, locate yourself in this story as well. Find yourself in this passage. As they were baptized into Moses, you've been baptized into Jesus. That means he has already delivered you in the most profound way possible from sin and death. In his Son, he has parted the waters of judgment for you. In His Son, He has parted the waters of wrath. As Charles Spurgeon once said, if I cannot trace His hand, I will trust His heart. If you cannot trace God's hand in your life this morning, I think this passage gives you and me reason to trust his heart. In Jesus, he parted the waters of judgment that you might walk forward in relationship to him, friends. You can trust his heart. So take this theology of salvation home with you today. God saves for his glory for His glory, through judgment, through a fearful judgment here for our reverent faith and trust, for we have a mighty object of our faith. Let's pray together. And wherever you relate to this passage 
maybe in your own helplessness or trials or doubts or difficulties, you can just, in the silence of your heart, cry out to God this morning yourself. Maybe it's that prayer of help. Have mercy. And cling, even with weak faith, cling to the strong object of your faith in Christ. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for this picture, this theology of salvation before us. Thank you for this paradigm, this picture that helps us to see how you say for your glory. We thank you for that. How you save through the judgment we deserve falling on your Son. Help us now to respond with a reverent faith, a holy awe and wonder, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.